Hey, it's Jackie, and today I want to talk to you about our church mothers, those women who've gone before us. Isaac Newton said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And if that's true, and I think it is, well, then we Christian women need to stand on the shoulders of the female giants in the early church. But unfortunately, many of us have been denied the knowledge of those stories. Beth Allison Barr, in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, states that the problem is simply that women's leadership has been forgotten because women's stories throughout history have been covered up, neglected, or retold to recast women as less significant than they really were. She goes on to say that when popular theologians like John Piper stand up and say unequivocally that it is not okay and never has been okay for women to teach men, We accept his teachings because, well, we lack a historical context in which to evaluate his claims. And so it's time we learn our history. Today, I've invited Dr. Sandra Galan. She's a multi-published author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, a speaker who advocates for thinking that transforms, particularly on topics that relate to art, gender, sexual intimacy, and marriage. And as we walk through this conversation, my hope is that you will learn these women's names. You will embrace your female Christian heritage, and you'll feel ennobled, lifted up to dignity, as Jesus intended. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. So welcome, Dr. Glan. Should I call you Sandy or would you prefer Dr. (laughs) Glan? So... When we're alone, you can call me that. But uh, in public, uh, I'm going to call you Dr. Reese, and I want you to call me Dr. G. We can make it a little less formal than Galan. And here's the rationale behind that. Uh, when I was at Evangelical Theological Society meeting last year, Karen, Dr. Karen Jobes, uh, who's the incoming president, uh, urged women to call each other uh, by their titles because so often people forget that people have doctorates when they do. Uh, or they leave them off. Um, And so I know that you're an advocate for women. So let's be Dr. G and Dr. Reese. I agree. I I left off my titles for years and years and years because I was trying to connect well with women. I didn't want to create a bridge. And then I realized I'm actually not helping women. Who, who are really striving to get their PhDs and their doctorates, et cetera, et cetera. That was my journey, too. I would yep. have students call me Sandy, and then I noticed I was Sandy, and my colleagues were Dr. X and Dr. Y. And so then it was just the women faculty that were going by our first names. And that wasn't something I wanted my students to think was a great idea. Right. So You didn't want to yeah. show that. Yep. Okay, so yeah. you, um, I would love for you to share with us, how did you come about studying and teaching on visual arts, particularly when it 
pertains to women, like gender and visual arts. How did that happen? Well, my brother is a visual artist who uh, has been received into the Antiochian Orthodox Church, as has my mother. And part of his spiritual journey away from evangelicalism and toward the Orthodox with a capital O church was a deeply developed theology around iconography and around visual arts. And he is a visual artist. He's a museum curator um, uh, Mm. on the Columbia River Gorge. And so that was very interesting to me. I hadn't heard of John of Damascus, who is uh, an old saint who's written some very important work on how to think about visual imagery. And so that was the beginning of, you know, conversations with my godly mother on uh, insisting she was not worshiping an icon, even if she kissed it, that uh, that, that that veneration was the picture that reminded her or helped her access um her the history of the cloud of witnesses that includes women and then i as i'm studying where we lost the women's stories you know when i go to church with my mother on the front of the bulletin would be a woman's story every week because they're telling they have saints days right saints feast now of course we kept we kept saint valentine and we kept patrick because they have great parties but you know most protestants (laughs) Other than that, might know the Feast of Stephen, you know, good cooking, Wenceslas, whatever is, is there on the day after Christmas. But, right, we, we're barely aware that there are saints' days. Um, and, you know, to the Reformers' credit, to the Protestant Reformers' credit, they were seeing in the New Testament, rightly, that every believer in Jesus Christ is called holy or a saint. And so they were saying this sort of stair step is not good. It makes people feel like there are levels of spirituality. And I get that. The problem, though, when we kicked out saint as a title was we lost the holy days that reminded us there was a biography or more than one for every day of the year, men and women. Mm -hmm. And so when I walked into Martin Luther's childhood church uh, in Germany, I saw five women on the wall from his time that he would have known. It was Catherine with a wheel, Catherine of Alexandria. Um, you know, today I can look at them and kind of know who they were, but at the time I was just intrigued. I had to buy a book right, that explained right. who they were. And I knew that he had prayed to St. Anne, the mother of Mary, when he supposedly was struck by lightning. Like I knew this was part of the great Martin Luther uh, and, and his life. And so all of these different factors, I the, the recognition that we'd lost the saints, the recognition that the icons are remembering the saints and that there are streams of Christianity that are that have not forgotten these women. I wanted to know who are the women in the cloud of witnesses whose shoulders that I, you know, I'm standing on. I, I so often heard that women weren't in the church much in leadership until, you know, the modern Western women's movement. And, and I was just finding that not to be true. And it was the visual record that was showing me it wasn't true. As I'm looking at art from the 6th century mosaics in Ravenna, from, you know, the 8th century, just through the, all the way through the centuries, women holding shepherd's crooks called croziers, right? Um, where pastoral ministry is the metaphor visually for them. Right. I wanted to know, I wanted to access our stories through the visual, visual history. I was teaching a course in medieval art and spirituality for uh, the seminary where I teach. 
And so I was taking students to Italy and through the help of my brother had already begun to learn to be to become visually literate, to know how to identify Jesus and John the Baptist. And when is Mary Magdalene in the picture? You know, what are the little signs that are going to show up? Even St. Agnes, whose name in Latin means a lamb, often is depicted with a little lamb at her feet. Um, and so I was beginning to gain some of that visual literacy. And so I started studying and I started noticing. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Yeah. So well, that kind of takes me a little bit to my journey of I also was not introduced to, to any of these women. And you don't even realize it, but if you don't hear their names, like celebrating the saints in different yes. strains of Christianity, um, you almost in your mind don't you don't picture them there. They're not there. You don't see them in the story, even though they are in the story because you just don't have them put before you. Yeah. And so I read a book several years back called lives of unforgetting. I loved the book and the author made this argument that there were women in the early women leaders in the early church and that this leadership dwindled um, underneath the persecution of the Roman Empire, Diocletian. I'm not even sure if mm-hmm. I got that right. Yeah. I got the guy right. after- I'm not sure I said his name right. Yeah, Diocletian. Yeah. <laughs> and then Constantine came to power, and there's a variety of reasons here, but we start to see these women leaders' stories fade. And throughout yes. the years that go by, the stories that were told over and over again about these women stop being told, or they become footnotes, really, first. It's just abbreviations. And then, Mm -hmm. after a while, they're no longer mentioned. Um, And if they are mentioned, their stories get recast as heretical women. So I read this book, and I was like, is this true? And, And can I believe this? You know, like, it just set me on this, like, what? And then I enrolled at Northern Seminary, where I started studying uh, women in the early church under Dr. Lynn Coick, and she had you come teach one of our classes, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was about showing us some of this visual art that you have discovered mm-hmm. about women in the early church. So share with our audience, um, do we have depictions of women in leadership in the church yes. Oh my leadership? gosh, yes, we do. Well, here's, here's the bit first surprise was how much gender parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, not O-D-Y, <laughs> parity, parity, um, that the early art has men and women, and you you really don't see men alone. Um, mm. There, There's one, like I can think of a reliquary uh, that, holds, that holds bones, uh, holy bones, uh, from pretty early on, third or fourth century, that has a woman and a man in ivory, and they are standing in front of the altar at St. Peter's in Rome. Um, And it looks like what they're doing is one is holding up the wine and one is holding up the bread. Um, When you go to Ravenna, which was for a while the the capital of the Byzantine Empire, most of us don't know, we always just think of Rome, but Ravenna was the capital for a while. And so you have Justinian, this very rich emperor, uh, who's very much about empire, but also is spending a lot of money during his reign uh, on some nationalism. And so he and his wife are showing up in holy spaces. But in these beautiful mosaics of Ravenna, I'm thinking 7th century, I could be wrong, might be 8th, might be 6th. Anyway, early. Early. Um, <laughs> one side of the altar, she's holding bread and, you know, or the basket with bread and on the other, with it, with her entourage. And on the other side, he is holding the wine and it's over the holy altar where communion is going to be served. 
And I'm standing there looking at that saying there had to be at some point in the early church after Constantine where women were still handling the elements or you just would not see this depicted. There's uh, an early depiction of Mary wearing the vestiges of a bishop. There is uh, an inscription in the church of Praxedes in Rome who Praxedes... um, is thought to be the granddaughter of Pudens, who is mentioned in one of the pastoral epistles, probably an, you know, an early Roman. And uh, she and her sister, uh, Praxedes and Pudensiana, were never married, but they were martyred because they would run to where the martyrs were and collect their bones, wash their bones, give them a dignity, uh, a dignified burial, Mm. which was a core value for Christians. Because we value physicality, because we believe in the resurrection, it's not that we don't believe Jesus who put all bodies back together. It's just we that's part of why the tradition in Christianity has typically been to bury instead of cremation, right? And so they are taking that very seriously to the point where, oh, you must be one of them, (laughs) you know, if you're willing to do that and they lose their lives. So you have this church that is on the spot where it's thought that they you know, had this house church from pretty early in Rome. And so again, Justinian comes along in later centuries and he has gorgeous mosaics put up. And there's a little mausoleum on the side that is dedicated to his mother while she's still alive, probably probably thinking, you know, she'll be buried there. The way we know she's still alive is because she gets a square halo or limbus. And that's one of the visual clues that the person is still alive at the time that the art is made, as opposed to a round halo, which means they're already glorified. Oh, that's fascinating. So, I did not know that. Yeah, exactly. This literacy is just so fun once once we learn what we're looking at. And but. Her name is written in the Greek in the mosaics, and it's Theodora Episcopa. Episcopa is the word for bishop, (laughs) except that they've left Episcopa up and they've changed Theodora to Theodoro. Like they just eliminated the last A and kind of filled in the mosaics, right, with the, the tiles. Uh, and so Theodoro Episcopa, who's a woman, but they've changed her name to a man, kind of like happened with Junia. Junia. Um, but what's funny is elsewhere in the same church, they didn't catch that there is another just an inscription describing her in the same era. And they don't cover up her name. And so we know so for someone sure. forgot to cover up the second exactly. piece of art. But, exactly. But, but what you're telling me is we have an example of where a woman who was known in the early church and had some sense of influence, power, authority, yeah. leadership, whatever words we want to use, she's being erased. Her story is being, yes. well, actually her story is being yes. recast, right? She's no longer yes. a, a woman. She's a man. So we see this. We have literal visual yes. arts that show us yes. this. There's another one where in the Lateran Baptistry, which is pretty early, I'm thinking fourth century, again, it could be sixth, but you know, you get the idea. Um, Mary, the Virgin Mary in mosaics is depicted, again, with this sort of sash down her front with a cross on it, which is what bishops wear. And she is in the middle of the mosaic, and then on, you know, she's flanked by apostles. And, And we have a painting of that mosaic that dates to 1899, that shows that it is a cross on her, uh, on her apparel, right? But today, that tile again has been changed to just make it an L, 
And the first time I was there, I said, what does an L mean? Does anybody know what an L is? Because I didn't realize it had been altered. Nobody with me knew. I was like, I've never seen an L on those. It's always a cross. How did that become? What? And, and then went home and did some study and discovered, oh, well, in 1917, there was a law, you know, a sort of Roman law passed that uh, you couldn't depict a woman as a bishop. And so somebody went in. We know it happened after 1899 because we have this painting, painting of it that included it. So once again, an erasure that takes away a sign that has her with too much power and just takes away the evidence that at one point that was a completely acceptable thing in a public space. So, you know, I think of Watergate when they said it, it's not as much the crime as it, as it is the cover up. And these things we might have looked at and said, well, maybe because it's the mother of Jesus, you know, there's like somebody official thought this was a threat. Um, you don't just Because go you wouldn't in and, go into those churches you and change would not. something. You would not unless you had permission. Like, you, no, that is the Pope's church. Like, <laughs> right. it is the Lateran church. Uh, it is the, like the first church of Rome. It's, yeah, we tend to think of St. Peter's as being the big church, but the St. John in Lateran is the Pope's church. So somebody in authority. Somebody in authority authorized for that, or it ordered, I guess. Ordered it done. For that to be changed, yeah. You know, it's fascinating. I did, um, I know right now that I have listeners going, I don't even know what to do with that information. <laughs> but I've taught on Mary, the mother of Jesus this year. Mm -hmm. And I talked about these extra canonical books that we have in art that depicts Mary as a leader, very much like you just described. And most of these women are coming out of conservative evangelical worlds, and they had just never heard this, right? By the way, it's not like I had heard it for a very long time either. This was fairly new to me in the last five some five years or mm. so. Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, they're so used to seeing Mary in the arts. We see Mary today very much as like very meek, motherly, right? She's always usually holding the baby, very submissive figure, looking to the ground. And as you stated, that's not exactly the original picture. So when you say to someone, Mary was potentially a leader, in the early church, that's maybe accurate from the yeah. art, right? So like you, I... Look at how hesitant I was there, Dr. Galan. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple things. First of all, we're Protestants, and Protestants have overreacted against, you know, what we perceive as an, and, and in some cases truly is an over... Right. We um, start having fast heartbeats yeah. over Mary. When you talk so, about Mary. Yeah, so then we start, you know, we're, we're twitching <laughs> we're over here. Yeah. Right. yeah. But Mary is, I think, the third most mentioned human being in the New Testament. I mean, she's got, she's, she's got some real estate in the New Testament. And, you know, her body is bearing God. <laughs> And so uh, let's let's recover her. I know that you are doing that as, as yeah, part of yeah. what you're you teaching. Yeah, yeah. You know, Amy Peeler, I just read something oh. in her, her new book. I'm not going to remember the title. Do you remember the title? Yeah, I'm, I'm reviewing oh, it right now. Oh, you have it right there. Fact, I have mine yeah. in the other room, so I'd have Jesus to leave you and go get Jesus and the gender of God. There we go. It's Jesus so and the gender of good. God. I will, I will so actually good. put it in the podcast link so people oh can goodness. order it. But, And so I'm not going to get this fully right, but she's the first person that ever put it out there that potentially, you know, the argument is that women can't, uh, in the Catholic tradition, women can't um, pass out the, the elements. Handle during, the elements, yeah. Right. Yeah. Although you just said there's ancient art that shows women and there men is. doing that. Yeah. And then Two she, different ones, yeah. And she makes the argument that 
Mary's body was actually, oh, and the argument is that we can't do that because Jesus is male and only males can do that, you know, to be like Jesus, to represent Jesus, you have to be male. And she makes the argument that, um, that Mary is the first to host the body and blood of Christ. She sure does. I know. Boom. Right. Yeah. I've never heard that before. If the body and blood is embodied in the womb of Mary, then she is of all people, (laughs) Uh, dignified through through the grace of Christ to touch the elements. To touch the elements. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ooh. if her body is hosting the host, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I just had never even heard that. So I really appreciate yeah. her work and for bringing that forth. It does, you know, yes. give us another argument for why women can lead in certain areas. And definitely, you know, when it comes to communion or the Eucharist, yeah. depending on your strain. So recently yes. you took a couple of my colleagues from Northern Seminary with you on a trek to Italy. And I, I, I tracked you oh. guys on social media a bit envious. <laughs> the whole way. Um, tell us about some of the art the women saw. Well, the first place we uh, we visited was in Venice, where we saw the reliquary I um, described, where uh, what's in the first time I went six months earlier, I went looking for it and could not find it because I was expecting it to be the size of a coffin and it's the size of a Kleenex box, first of all. Oh. Second of all, the what I was looking for is not on the front side. It's on the back side. So the museum has installed a mirror so that you can see it in the mirror image, but you can't actually look straight onto it. So the third trip, I need to get permission to just get, you know, get that thing out in a room it. with gloves. <laughs> yeah, get, get it on a table where we can you know, do the academic request and get access to it. So, but we did, it was super fun to find it because we were still running all around. When I got home from the first trip where I didn't find it, and mind you, I had a photographer and a Latin translator with me. And oh my so goodness. we'd spent some money oh to gosh. get there and could not find it. And part of it was the docents that we asked said, oh no, I, I don't think it's here. So when I got home and I found it on the website, I wrote to the museum and said, you know, why would you say you have this thing when you don't? And they said, oh no, it's right here. What? Wow. So, uh, so, but I had the room number now. Anyway, so that was the first thing we did. And there was much rejoicing because they knew how much was at stake. Another thing that we looked it's like at like a real treasure was, hunt that you oh, guys were on. Oh, it was totally on. a treasure hunt. It was very fun. <laughs> and all these other people are walking by us in the museum and they're looking to see what we're looking at. And they're, you can tell they're like, I'm not getting that. I'm not getting Whatever. Like, oh, I, it's, I, it's behind. It's yeah, behind. It's behind. <laughs> So then another another one that uh, last summer I could not find was I was told that in the Vatican, there was art depicting a woman named Crispina and that she was shown preaching early on, like third century. And I get there with students. <laughs> I kid you not. The section it was in, they said, oh, yeah, they're going to vacuum that today. And we oh. decided to close it down. I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. And you just, you don't tell the Vatican, no, you can't vacuum right now. So we did not get to see it then. So these were two major things on the list that we didn't get to see. So here I walk in in December with the Northern students, like a boss going, we are going to get here at nine o'clock. Like our guide knew she had been there with me this summer. There will she be was no vacuuming there today. Will be no vacuuming at nine. And if it happens at nine, we'll be back at three. Okay. So we are on our way to be sure to see this thing. And the announcement goes out that the, that the Pope Emeritus is dying. And if the Pope passes away that day, the Vatican will close down and we will all be asked to leave. And so we're like, please stay alive. Please stay alive. Please stay alive. 
for our unselfish purpose, which is we're here to see art. We need to see this piece. Um, and in the kindness of God, the Pope lived another three days. So we go into this section and we look and we look and we cannot find it. Oh, and, oh my heart. My heart is just sinking. And as we are walking out, realize that it is right by the door, like where we walked in. And not only is it right by the door, but there's a huge like display explanation. And what it is, it's on the side of um, a grave that's like ivory or marble. It's white. It's probably marble. And it's a woman who there's a book in front of her and then above the book is the Cairo symbol which is this it's like a circle with right with a p and x's yep. which is the sign one of the early christian signs for christ which is letting you know she has this book she is speaking and she isn't just speaking any words of any book it's christian content and this is a a public teacher wow and, uh, and her name and her name is spelled out as crispina uh, there was there is other art that we saw of women with uh, with baskets next to them with scrolls and this is probably um, there's one of them of I think it's the apostle Mark in Ravenna where he is shown with a similar basket because when when Paul writes to to uh, Timothy bring my parchments he's probably talking about grab my basket and you know that's how a bible teacher is depicted early on right they don't have a codex they don't have a bound right. book they've got these scrolls and so you're seeing women in holy spaces depicted with one of these baskets that's got scrolls in it the holy so scriptures you have to assume why else would it's not just that she's got a library you know random library <laughs> if she's being depicted in christian spaces um, so that was fun to see. Uh, another thing that was really fun was we were in the basement, uh, the, the crypt of the Milan Cathedral, and that for a thousand years was named for Thecla, who's a, a third century. Some people think it's fan fiction. Others think it's legit. It's not up to us to decide. All we have to know is for a thousand years, she was considered credible enough that everyone in Milan knew who she was and honored her and knew her story uh, as part of this, um, what we would describe the apocryphal works. But again, you have to ask, does that mean it wasn't real? Um, well, and she had they, weight because her story kept getting told. Exactly. For a yeah. very long yeah. time. It's being That's passed right. down and passed down and passed exactly. down. So, so something about something however about it, it plays out, something yeah. about her had power and authority exactly. or her story wouldn't have been retold. Yeah, I think we see something super similar with Jephthah's daughter and judges, right? People argue, well, I don't think she died. I think she was just mourning her virginity. It's like, no, I think if they had an annual festival to remember her, right. this is not right. Yeah. So same kind of deal. Yes. It's like if such a big deal was made out of it, at some point there was ground zero for this where people knew the story and honored it. So anyway, one of the things that was really interesting uh, on this trip was I think we identified like eight different churches named for women that had lasted over a thousand years. And wow. this trend then to rename them for Mary or for the Apostle John, usually renamed for men, but if, if renamed for a woman, it was Mary. And so again, just another way that Ray Parada and uh, Thecla got sort of erased nice. as they were replaced with other names. Yeah, this was the, you know, this is my third seminary degree at Northern, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of Thecla. 
And I thought, oh, oh wow. what's happening? I know. I, and one of the things that Dr. Kowick asked us to do upon in this class of women in the early church was to think about um, how do we interpret these things, these icons, this art, do they have any weight, right? And and I have to be honest, 20 years ago, if I were having this conversation, I don't know, maybe even 12 years ago, if I were having this conversation, I would not take the art and the icons that are out there um, as serious evidence pointing to the affirmation that women can lead in the church. Um, so tell me, and, and I suspect... Uh, there are listeners who probably think the same thing I do. I was taught scripture is it. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the only thing yeah. that has authority. Yeah. That's the only thing we look to. And because we've seen it so much from male lens learning about it, um, we haven't yeah. always had the women's stories told as much. We don't even see it. So, so then that's it. Yeah. We, we don't see women leading in the, in the scriptures. I actually would argue we do. Mm -hmm. But yeah. we... What difference yeah. does it make that we have this? Should we give yeah. the frescoes and these, these uh, uh, you know, boxes with bones in them? Do they get any weight of of telling us something about the role yeah. of women? Great, great question. First of all, I think that one of the things that has changed my heart as I've encountered my African American friends and their stories about their history is how much they absolutely have to depend on oral history or they don't have a history. Right. And there has been a real tendency in white European traditions to just not even listen to oral history or count it because it's not documented. But that pretty much erases Native American, like most right. of the Native Americans in America, right? Um, and so so there's I've, I've been on a journey to take uh, oral history more seriously and to see it as a really valid, uh, a valid thing. And then also the visual history recognizing that before the printing press around the time of the protestant reformation the first 1500 years of church history it was your bible was visual and there is a tendency on the part of of protestants to poo-poo cathedrals and say they're just ripping off the peasants and some of them were but also the peasants didn't have bibles so and they couldn't had to, read and couldn't read Most if people they couldn't didn't read. have bibles that's right, right. And so, but they did have the stained glass window with That's Jesus right. as a good shepherd. And not only that, the stained glass windows are very complex for, or the, the art. In the same section of the church I described in Ravenna with the empress and emperor on each side, you have Abel on one side and Melchizedek on the other side of the altar because both of them brought a perfect sacrifice. Okay. Mm -hmm. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Abel's sacrifice? And when's the last time you heard on Melchizedek's, right? Not in a long, and not well, in a long in seminary. Time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you begin to realize it's very hard to put Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, which is where we tend to camp uh, in visual art, but it's a lot easier to put the prophets and the narratives. Right. And so earlier Christians are just drawing on different sections of scripture uh, and filling their churches with these stories that uh, if you go into the Orvieto Cathedral, which is about an hour north of Rome by train, uh, it's 1300s, you're going to see almost all the minor prophets. Uh, you're going to see uh, Amos and you're going to know that he was pruning a tree, which the average person in my Bible study doesn't know. Right. So right. again, so it's visual literacy. And so this visual literacy is 
including men and women. And it's telling the stories of men and women and it's honoring men and women. And I think sometimes we look at the early virgins who there are 22 of them, I think 20, yeah, it's 22 in Ravenna. They're, they're just proceeding to the throne of Christ on one side and on the other side of the room, her, the brothers are doing the same thing in parallel. Sure. Actually, the women are proceeding to the nativity to, to Mary holding the baby and the, the men are proceeding to Christ on the throne. And I think it's interesting as I looked the first time, I looked at all those virgins, only two of them were married and the rest were virgins. I was thinking, oh, this is purity culture, right? <laughs> you know, they, they, boy, they went out of their way. And then, you know, I started reading up on the virgins going, oh, no, it was the exact opposite. It was agency. Yes. If the emperor is saying, I want you to make babies to stock my army for war, and you're going, I am not marrying who you tell me I have to marry. <laughs> Besides, he's not a nice man, and I love Jesus. And so they would they would die right. rather than be married to somebody that was going to undermine their faith or was going to be part of an unholy empire. Um, and so all of that is is a new education to me that was introduced yeah, by the too. visual images. And then it sent me to Google and it sent me to the to the list of saints and the hagiography, which is a fancy word for their stories. Thank you, because I don't I I, I, yeah. I actually read that word in one of the books and I had to look it up and then I wrote next yeah. to it. The... <laughs> so I do a lot of that. Hagia is the word for Greek for holy. So hagiography is like the holy stories. Holy stories. Holy, I love holy, that. Holy people stories. So when I started learning this stuff, I felt a little cheated. And I know some other women that were in Dr. Kowick's class kind of responded the same way. Like there's knowledge is power and somehow this knowledge of women was kept from us. And, And for me personally and for other women in that class, it was like, well, wow, had I known this, this would have saved me a whole lot of angst in trying to figure out how to live out my calling. Um, So how do women respond when you share, when you teach them some of these things? Uh, do you find, what what are their responses? Yeah, it's a range. I think frustration is one of them. Um, I So when the Visual Museum, of which I'm a part uh, with Lynn Kohick and, and George Kalanzas at Wheaton, the three of us founded visualmuseum.gallery to tell some of these stories and art depicted. And when we had a conference that included Amy Peeler actually in, in Wheaton um, earlier this year, I took one of my former interns with me and she got back to the hotel room we were sharing and just sobbed mm. and said, I've only ever heard of one of the women that was mentioned today. There wow. were so many stories of women told yeah. and I never even heard, heard of, of them. Yeah. And so it was grief. And I and I think um, some of that anger is grief of feeling alone. I remember when I was only one of three female seminary professors thinking this was new ground, thinking women were just learning the languages, not knowing that Paula was, you know, Paul's best translator. I mean, sorry, Jerome's best translator, um, and that he took some flack for dedicating one of his commentaries to her, to right? Her. Yep, like, yep. Yeah, and so just uh, finding out, no, I'm not breaking new ground. I am standing on the shoulders of centuries and centuries of people who sacrifice much more than I have. Right. And it, it encouraged me. So 
it encouragement that you're not alone, uh, a sense that God views women more highly than you thought, which you didn't realize was making you feel bad until you realize it's not true. And then I remember where I was sitting when some of these things like dawned on me that God held a higher view of women than I had thought, um, particularly as somebody who has been through infertility and pregnancy loss, you know, just wrestled with what was I made for if... Right. You know, the the sort of evangelical subculture ideal of womanhood is marriage and children. And if I couldn't do that, and and some of the interpretations I heard were that my channeling of the gift of teaching needed to be in a nuclear family. So you can imagine. So there's freedom. That's painful. There's grief. There's pain. Um, I think that um, it's important to to lament. Yeah. Um, and to celebrate people like Lynn Kohick, who are just rock stars, bringing some of this to the popular level that we can understand it and introducing. Um, I love that lots of women like you uh, at Northern and other places are contributing to the Visual Museum. They're spending some of their writing time researching these people academically um, and you know, given resources and bibliographies. So we get the summaries, but also where we can find more. So is this up and running? Like, are we, yeah. are we, yeah. so like, I'm yeah. going to put a link in the podcast it's, so that everybody can beta. find it. It's, you know, it's a baby, but we are looking for more funding to get to Ethiopia, to, to get around the world. Okay, ladies uh, it, out there that have a lot of money, yeah. it's time for you to donate to that so that we can have these holy stories. And just saying. also, if you travel, like, I can't give you a list of what we need because I keep finding things I didn't know existed. When I was in England earlier uh, this summer, I found three different stained glass windows with women holding crosiers. Uh, you know, the shepherd's staff and and dating from the 6th through the 8th century. I couldn't have told somebody as part of the Visual Museum, right. go take those photos for me because I don't know they exist. That's so right. you've got to go into these holy spaces when you're traveling, take good photos for us and document what year the person lived and what year the art was created and where you found it and and contact us through the site and like everybody is deputized to help to <laughs> have your eyes believers open. priesthood yeah. of believers out there ladies and gentlemen there gentlemen go. too yeah. That, yeah that that leads me to ask the question we've talked a lot about women how have men responded i yeah. would imagine this is enlightening to men in your classes also so what have been yeah. some of their responses well, first of all, you know, not every man is an alpha male. And so I think that for some of the men in my classes uh, who have been a disappointment to their parents because they didn't play football or soccer mm. and because they wanted to draw or do art or they were introverted or they didn't or their spiritual gifts were in administration or service and they might go wash dishes for people instead of preaching, all of which has been undervalued and all of which is spirit filled. And so some of that for them has been freeing mm. to find out that not only is there a range of gifts for women in public, but there is a range of gifts for men not in public, <laughs> which we women know about the not in public part for women. Yes, we but, do. Right. Yeah. Um, so just some of that of just, uh, but also I think seeing the gender parity in some of these spaces, one of my favorite mosaics is uh, in the in the church of of where where you see the uh, episcopa 
Theodora Episcopa, uh, <laughs> at the front of the apse, which is a fancy word for in the, the part of, in the front of the church that's usually curved and has the altar. You have this mosaic, and on one side, Peter has his arm around one sister, and Paul has his arm around the other sister, and then they are, Christ is in the middle, and they're both kind of pointing, commending these sisters to Christ. The first thing I said when I saw them was, eighth century, no Billy Graham roll. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, it is, this is how we think out there. This is how us geeky people yeah, think. We think exactly. This. <laughs> but I think, I think when you saw, when, when I got past the, you know, the snark, the joke of um, it, yeah, <laughs> the joke of it. But, but actually, truly, I'm like, because I think I was taught. Oh my goodness, they definitely didn't touch an earlier century. Right. And I'm like, wait, holy kiss, that's in the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And so to see a male female pairing of Peter and one twin, one sister. The male-female pairing of Paul and the other sister. Then over in the in that mausoleum area where the Pope's getting ready for his mother, there's an outer arch that has the 12 apostles and then an inner arch that has eight women. We don't know who they were. The original audience would have known who these holy women wow. were. But all over this chapel where there are men honored, then there are women. Where there are women honored, there, there are, are men. men. Yeah. And so you're just seeing this emphasis on men and women working together. And I think that's been encouraging to my male students, particularly because a lot of my male students are, you know, they're ministry minded and they're asking the question, how can I help uh, turn loose women to use their gifts in the right. church that needs them? And so they they say things like, OK, I guess my missions committee, I need to look at it and say, does it have men and women on it? Are my greeters men and women? Are the counselors at the front, men and women? And so just seeing modeled this, yeah. this parity, are we having men and women as part of communion? Are we having men and women as part of the baptism service? Uh, and that is true complementarity, right? Where yes. men and women are serving together and fully imaging that male-female of, of God represented. Yeah, I think Carolyn Custis James calls it the Blessed Alliance, and I think that's yes. one of the most beautiful things we can say. It's it it's this is. allyship, right, between yes. male and female. is the I, I think it's the ideal example of how we're supposed to operate I as Christians too. in all kinds of facets, not just in the family life as husband and wife, right. but in every dimension. So, yeah. Well, I want to thank you for giving us your time. What the listeners don't know is that uh, Dr. Galan and I actually recorded this once before, (laughs) and it got all messed up. And then she went to Europe to look for all of these things all (laughs) over, you know, these little icons everywhere. And she's a little jet lagged and home. So, uh, and we had to redo it because the first one didn't work out right. But so I want to thank you for your time and especially right at the end, you know, coming home and being jet lagged. But I know Thank our you. listeners are going to want to find you. So where do they go uh, to, to learn more from you? So sandraglan.com. It's G-L-A-H-N. Sandra, G-L-A-H-N.com um, has all kinds of resources, whether it's links to the art. I've got a book coming out on Artemis of the Ephesians on who in the world she was and what effect that might have had on First Timothy. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being with us. So I know we mentioned a whole lot of links, and I want to assure you I will be uploading them with the podcast. And if you want, you can join us on the Facebook, Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group. We're going to have more dialogue about some of the things that Dr. Glon said. But I wanted to leave you with this. 
There's a saying that says having a woman to look up to is as crucial part of a girl's development. A woman in a position of power allows girls to envision themselves in the same position and to create goals for their success. And I believe, those of you listening, that you have power and influence. Your life is creating a wake for those who are coming behind you. Women and girls, they see you, and because of you, they are able to dream big dreams for themselves. And your stories, well, they, are, they will not be forgotten because, well, because we have social media, but also because of this next generation, they're going to embody them. And on that note, have a great day. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.